Well, before we begin to look at God's word, let us speak with him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege it is to have your word. We thank you that we can rely on it, that it is truth and it is without lie or deception. We thank you that you are not a deceiving God and that we can rely on you and trust you. We pray that you will speak to us this morning, that your Holy Spirit may be present amongst us and enlightening our minds as we read your word. We need much light, Lord. Our minds are so dark and so hard. We pray that you will give us this light by your word, that we may be strengthened and come to newness of life through looking at your word this morning. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, this week, Jill and I have officially become landlords. We've become landlords for the first time. We had the privilege when we got married of being able to buy our own home. God had blessed uh, us and so we stayed in that house for three years and now that we've moved here we decided to, to hang on to it and to rent it out and God blessed us with some, land, uh, some tenants quite quickly. And so it's uh, been our first week of having them out there and we quite liked that home. We enjoyed living there. We, uh, Jill liked it when she first saw it. We were going around when we were trying to choose a home and we saw lots of different places and she really liked the look of that place. She liked the paint. Uh, we liked the kitchen. It was a nice kitchen there as well and it had a nice little courtyard out the back with uh, no grass for me to mow so that was quite good and out the front it was strated so it's a villa and so they mow the lawn out the front. So I don't own a lawnmower and uh, so that was quite, uh, quite good for me for a number of years. So we quite liked that home. And so we're a bit apprehensive about putting it out to these, these tenants because we're quite defensive of our homes and so we want them to look after it. We don't want them to break it or destroy it in the way uh, that we've looked after it. We want them to look after it as well. And I think we're all a bit like that if we own our own home, if we have that privilege that God has blessed us with owning our own home. We're quite defensive of our homes. We defend it in lots of different ways. We defend it from burglars. So you might put in an alarm system, but always you you tend to lock your doors. Uh, You try to defend it from burglars. And you try to defend it from pests, from termites and things like that. It was amazing when we first uh, were looking at buying the home and doing all the building inspections and pest inspections. The pest report that came to me, it, uh, it had at the back a sort of a, a list of all the different things and what they are uh, that can eat your home. And all the different beetles and bugs and things like this that I had no idea were out there. I knew about termites. But there's quite a, a, quite a wide variety. They have different tastes, some for pine and this kind of thing, what you build your home with. And so you defend your home from those things. You put down uh, chemicals to try and keep them out. And, of course, you, you defend them from tenants. You, you're quite uh, picky about who you have as your tenants. You may have different preferences. You go for non-smokers or you go for people without pets. We're quite defensive of our homes. We defend them in various ways from different ways of attack. And this morning we're looking at a passage of Jesus defending homes as well. He's defending houses. And we see uh, that he defends a couple of houses, two houses in particular. And the first is quite obvious. If you've got your Bibles there, open them up to page 1051 if you've got a church pew Bible. Otherwise, John chapter 2, verse 12 and onwards, we'll be looking at Jesus defending homes. Jesus defending homes. And the first one, the obvious one, is that Jesus defends the old temple and he calls that his father's house. It's a father's home there and he defends that temple. Who's he defended from? Who does he defend it from? Does he defend it from termites? No. Well, we see there in verse 14 
that he defends it from these people. He kicks them out in verse 14. These people who are doing what? Verse 14. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Here we see Jesus defending the home from these people who were selling oxen, selling sheep, selling doves and exchanging money. Now why does he kick these people out? Is it obvious why they were needing to be kicked out of the temple? Because the Jewish leaders were letting them be there, so obviously they didn't have a problem with it. Why does Jesus have a problem with these people? What was their function? What were they doing there? Well, these people that were there selling the oxen and the sheep and the doves and changing money were actually fulfilling a a law that was put in in earlier in the Old Testament, one of Moses' laws. Because when you travelled as a Jew to the temple, you had to offer a sacrifice and you had to pay a temple tax. And so you would need an oxen, you would need a sheep, or if you were really poor, you'd need a dove to offer as a sacrifice. Now, if you were coming from Egypt, and some Jews were living quite a while away after the dispersion, they were all scattered all over the place. If you lived quite a while away from Jerusalem, from the temple, then you were told, go and don't take your oxen with you, don't lead it up there, don't carry your sheep on your shoulders. Go there and buy what you need and then do it. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14 actually outlines this. Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 24 and onwards it says, But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine or other fermented drink or anything you wish then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice and do not neglect the Levites living in your towns for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. So you're meant to care for the Levites living there but when you go take money with you and buy what you need there. So these guys that are in the temple courts are providing a legitimate service. They're providing something that was needed. You need to buy an oxen, you've come all this way and so you need, to, you need to do that. And of course you need to pay the temple tax. But of course if you come from Egypt, you haven't got the money, the currency that you need to pay in Jerusalem. They only accept a certain type of currency. And so you need to change your money over as well. Just as if I go to the United States, they don't accept my Australian dollars, so I have to change the money over there. And so we've got the money changers there, we've got the people selling the animals, and they're providing a legitimate service there. So why does Jesus kick them out? Why does he drive them out? Does he drive them out because they're corrupt and they're actually overcharging? Now this is actually something that was known to happen when you got there. Obviously there's a big market and so they'd bump up the prices just as if you used to go to Australia's Wonderland when it used to be there. You get in the door and then the burgers are 10 bucks. You know, they automatically bump everything up and the Cokes cost $15. You know, they, they sort of, when you get there, you're locked in and you have to pay extra. And we see in the other accounts of this story with uh, Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, uh, with Matthew, Mark and Luke that when he kicks people out of the temple he calls them a den of robbers. He does say, you're corrupt and I'm kicking you out. 
But this story here in John is actually probably a different occurrence. Jesus probably kicked people out of the temple twice because this happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in John and the others all record it happening just before he's crucified. And it's actually one of those factors that causes them to really hate him, he's kicking these people out of the temple. So this is probably the first account and he doesn't say it's about because they're a den of robbers. It's not about corruption. He just says there in verse 16, what's his reason? To those who sold doves he said, get these out of here, how dare you turn my house into a market. They've changed the function of the temple into a marketplace and that's what he's concerned about. He's not concerned about the exorbitant prices that they've popped on everything. He's concerned that they've turned a place of worship, a place of devotion into a marketplace and they're doing it in the outer courts. Now, of course, there, wasn't, and there are other parts of the temple where you do other parts of worship, but the outer courts was particularly there for Gentile worship, for people who are non-Jews. Because if you weren't a Jew, you were restricted from certain things in Judaism, but you could still become a, a, a proselyte, a, a one who comes in and, and become, sort of converts to Judaism. And so you were welcome in the outer court to pray. But of course, these Jews have all this marketplace going on and so it's quite difficult to pray among so many animals squawking and all this kind of thing in the background there and the money changers playing with their coins, this kind of thing's going on. It'd be quite difficult to pray. And so it's actually blocking out the Gentiles from praying and plus it's, it's, it's using that area, that outer court, for something that it wasn't meant to be used for. It wasn't meant to be a marketplace. And so we see people here turning a legitimate service into sin by carrying it on in the wrong place. They're carrying it on in the wrong place. This is a legitimate thing that they're doing. It's a need that has to be met by the Jews. It has to be met, but they're doing it in the wrong place. And Jesus says, you can't do it here. Do it elsewhere. Don't bring your worldly concerns of money changing and trying to get what you can from being associated with the temple and do it on in here. Do it outside. This place is a place for worship. It's my father's house. It's a place for devotion. And so we see people here who are just associating with the temple for what they could get. They weren't coming in the temple doors just for devotion to God. They're coming in because they want to make a quick buck and they want to do it as close to the action as possible. And so we've got people who have worldly concerns, money, you know, selling animals, this kind of thing, which is a, a legitimate function that was going on and needs to go on. We all need money and we need to transact, but it's not supposed to take expense at uh, the, the devotion to God. And so we see these people here just coming into the temple for what they could get out of it, not coming in to give to God, but coming in to get. And so we see Jesus' devotion in defending this old temple. He defends his father's house from these people who have worldly concerns and coming along for what they could get. So Jesus defends the old temple. What other temple does he defend? He defends two temples here. He defends the old temple, which is a fairly obvious one. What's the other temple that he defends? What's this new temple? And that brings me to my second main point. Jesus brings a new temple. And we find out about this because the Jewish leaders come to him in verse 18 and they demand of him, verse 18, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? They come to him and say, what, what authority do you have to kick everyone out like this? We kind of know it's wrong, but show us your authority. Why, why should you be kicking people out like this? And so Jesus announces about the new temple by answering them kind of cryptically there. He says in 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. 
And of course the Jews then think, when he says this temple, he's a bit vague, so they think, oh, he means this temple that's around me and so we're going to destroy it and you're going to raise it again in three days. And that's what they say in verse 20. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? Was he talking about the old temple? No, John the Apostle tells us in verse 21, in the narrative there he kind of tells us what's going on, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus was speaking about a different temple. He was speaking about his body. There's a new temple in town and it's my body and when you destroy it, I will raise it again in three days. And of course it came true. They did destroy his body. They put it on the cross They beat him beforehand, they whipped him and they put him up on the cross and they destroyed his body. And so it came true what he said and it it fulfilled the words of verse 17 as well, quoted from Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now I used to always read that as zeal for your house will consume me as in sort of the consuming passion. He's so driven by zeal for the house. But if you go back to Psalm 69 which we read uh, earlier, it actually shows that the psalmist there has zeal and it's actually consuming him in that everyone's persecuting him for being so zealous for God. And so the context of that psalm shows that the consuming is that it actually kills the person. It's actually causing bodily harm, mental anguish and it's actually consuming the person. The people around are consuming that person because of their zealousness for God. And so we see that with Jesus Christ as well. Yes, he is very passionate about being zealous for God here, but it is actually a consuming passion. It does consume him. At the cross he was consumed for being zealous for God. Before he went to the cross he prayed, not my will but your will be done, O Lord. He wanted what God wanted. He was zealous for God's will and it ended up consuming him. But did he stay consumed? Did he stay destroyed? No, he did raise his body in three days. After three days, he was raised from the dead. So we see in this passage that Jesus defends the old temple and we see that he announces a new temple and then we see that Jesus defends the new temple. Jesus that defends the new temple is my third main point. Where do we see this? Well, we see in verse 23 that while he's in Jerusalem, it reads, At the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. While he's there, he's doing some miracles and everyone is gathering around him, watching his miracles. We aren't told what miracles they are there. They could be acts of healing. It might have been more food production. Uh, He's already, in the previous passage, we saw that he made extra wine and people might have heard about this. And so they come along and they believe in his name. They witness his miracles and then believe in his name. Is this a genuine faith that they have? Do they have a genuine faith in him? Do they have a genuine belief in him? Well, it is right in parts of scripture we are told to believe in Jesus' name and we are told to believe in the miracles that he, he did amongst us and he, he continues to do miracles today amongst us but the, the act of rising from the dead is a great miracle that brings belief and we are to rely on those things. Is this a genuine belief? Well, verse 24 tells us that it wasn't. It was a superficial belief. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man for he knew what was in a man. We know it's a superficial belief because Jesus doesn't entrust himself to these people. He doesn't entrust himself to these people. And when we have a genuine belief in Jesus Christ, 
a saving belief, Jesus does entrust himself to us. He comes and dwells within us. He entrusts himself to us. He keeps continuing to help us grow in knowledge and understanding of him. But these people he doesn't entrust himself to. He defends the new temple from from any kind of corruption. He defends it from he doesn't give himself over willy-nilly to anyone who believes. And so we see here with this new temple that we've got people coming along and wanting to associate with the new temple for what they could get. Just as we saw with the old temple, people came along for what they could get. They could get some money, they could make a quick buck. And so we see it with the new temple. People love to come around Jesus because of what they could get. They could get a healing, they could get some bread, they could get some wine. Whatever Jesus' miracle was doing that day, they could get a bit of excitement, this kind of thing. People associating with Jesus for what they could get. And they're superficial and Jesus defends himself from them. He doesn't entrust himself to them. He blocks it off and says, you can associate with me, but I'm not going to entrust myself to you. I'm going to defend the new temple from you. And we see this still happens today. We see people often associate with the new temple, associate with Jesus, associate with Christianity because of what they can get. We see this in churches all the time. People uh, who raise up some sort of church and they, they really you can tell that they're all about the money that they can get or maybe they want the power and they want the excitement, this kind of thing. They aren't truly interested in the new temple, they're just interested in what they can get. And you see it with what they call Christian books. You go to a Christian bookstore and it's not necessarily everything in there is Christian. There are things in there that are going to be outright heresy but come under the name of Christianity. And it's because authors know that Christian books do sell. And if I market myself as a Christian and say all the right things, I can make a quick buck. I associate myself with the new temple because of what it can bring. And you see this even in in politics. You see this in the the presidential race in America. It is a well-known fact, if you run for the presidential office, you cannot be an atheist. You will just get disaster in the polls. You won't get in at all. You need to be a Christian and you need to talk about your faith if you want that Christian vote. You just won't go get in. And so when that fact is out there and well known, you start to wonder how much of these these Christian presidents are actually Christian. We're meant to test them by their fruit and sometimes their fruit doesn't pay out with what Christianity believes. People start to associate themselves with Christianity just for what they can get. They start to associate themselves with the new temple for what they can get. And so my question for you this morning is, is that you, if you're not a Christian, are you associating with Christianity just for what you can get? You come along to church each week just for what you can get. You come along so that maybe you can get a bit of love from some people. You you feel a bit lonely and so you need people to care for you and you like the kindness of Christianity. You like associating with the new temple because it makes you feel like a good person because people love you. Or maybe you even get some material blessing by going along and being called a Christian. People are kind to you and give you money, they give you clothes, they give you different things for your house. And so you associate yourself with Christianity because of what you can get. Some sort of worldly concern. Just as those people in the old temple were doing, they had worldly concerns that were right and good, but they were trying to get them from the temple. They were trying to go along to the temple just for what they could get, some sort of worldly concern. Because that's not good enough if that's you. You're missing out on the greatest thing. You're missing out on the greatest thing that you can get and that is eternal life. Jesus 
gives eternal life to those who believe in him as a payment for their sin. He doesn't give eternal life to those who think, I did some good miracles and he makes very kind people. He gives eternal life to those who believe in him as a sacrifice for their sins. That's what you need to do if you want eternal life. It's not good enough to simply associate yourself with the new temple, associate yourself with Christianity. You need to have belief in him as a sacrifice for your sins, that he alone is sufficient for your sins. Because when Jesus comes back, and he will, he will cleanse the world again. He will cleanse the world and when we see he cleanses, when he cleans up shop, he gets violent. We see it with the old temple. What did he do? He actually makes himself a whip and he starts to beat people who are there just for their worldly concerns. And so he will with the world when he comes back. And we're told in Revelation he doesn't come with a whip next time, he comes with a sword. And he throws people into eternal punishment in hell if they have just been associating with his temple for what they could get or they've been associated, even if you just, you don't hear about God but you still live in his creation. You don't hear about him through the Bible, you don't hear about Jesus Christ but you know there is a God because he's revealed himself in creation all the time and you continue to turn your back on him and you say, no, I'm not interested in serving you. And that's what happens in countries where they don't have Christians there preaching the gospel. They are still condemned because they choose to experience this world, take all the blessings that God gives. God gives blessings to sinners all the time. And they say, I'll just take the blessings, what I can get from you, God, but I don't want to acknowledge you. And so Jesus comes back with a sword and he gets angry, a righteous anger, just as he gets righteous righteously angry here in the temple, he will get angry again and he will say enough. He is patient and slow to anger but eventually his patience runs out and he says enough to hell with those people who haven't believed in me. And you can't get up like these Jews and say by what authority are you going to do this? Send me to hell. You might be able to get that question in and if he does answer he'll say on the authority that I was destroyed as the temple and I was raised again in three days. That resurrection, that's my authority where God the Father, God the Holy Spirit and God the Son saw it fit and worthy that I should be raised and all the evidence was before you. If you've heard the gospel, all the evidence is there. And that's the authority that Jesus will throw you into hell if you've just been associating with him because of what you could get. May it not be. Repent of your sins. Believe in him as a payment for your sins so that you will have eternal life. So we've seen that Jesus defends the old temple. We've seen that he brings a new temple. We've seen that he defends the new temple. My last main point, my fourth main point is how we should follow Christ's example and defend the temple. How should we as Christians defend the temple? And I say the temple and you say, well, what temple? Do we defend the old Jewish temple that's now got a mosque on top of it? Do we defend that temple? No, I think we're meant to defend a couple of temples which are basically all one. Of course, we've got the temple which Jesus introduces, the new temple, Jesus Christ. We should defend that. When people criticise Christ, when people slander Christ, when people say awful things about him, we should stand up for him. We should defend it. We should defend him 
from that kind of corruption that's coming along. So we're meant to defend Jesus himself as a new temple, but we can also defend the church as a temple as well. The Christian church is called a temple. It's part of, and Jesus is at the head of the church, and so we're part of the temple that we see as the Christian church. And so we should be ready to defend the Christian church as well. How do we defend that? Well, we can defend the Dremoyne Baptist Church as well. We can defend the membership. Who is actually a member of Dremoyne Baptist Church? And we can defend it in both ways that Jesus defends temples. We can defend it from new corruption coming in. We can defend it from non-Christians becoming part of membership. Now, it may seem obvious that we shouldn't let non-Christians into church membership, but it is something that has occurred through church history. They open up the doors and all kinds of people end up in, uh, as members of churches. And so we at Dremoyne Baptist need to continually remember that we need to defend it from new corruption coming in, from non-Christians coming in. How do we tell if someone's a non-Christian? How do we defend the, the temple that we call Dremoyne Baptist Church from fresh corruption? Well, unfortunately, we aren't like Jesus. Jesus there in, uh, in verse 24 says, uh, it says about Jesus, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. Now, unfortunately, we don't know all men. I can't see whether you are saved or not. Jesus can. But he still calls us to defend our temple and to try and ascertain as best we can whether someone is a Christian or not. And how do you do that? Well, you find out how, what they understand the gospel is. What is the good news of Jesus Christ? What's the answer they give to that? And that's why I, as I come around and visit, get to know you guys, members of the church, I will be asking you, what is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? And, and I will be listening to your answer. It's kind of reverse membership interviews from your new pastor coming around because it's important to know what people understand the gospel to be. Because if they answer, oh, it means being, uh, believing in Jesus Christ and something else, being a good person, going to church, that kind of thing, well, I would start to doubt whether you really do understand the gospel and whether you are saved. Believing the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus Christ is the only payment for your sin. And so when we accept new members into the church, we want to know what do they understand about the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? And then we also look at their lives. Jesus says, by their fruit you shall know them. So we look at the fruit of the trees. We accept them into membership based on what evidence we see of their lives. Now, of course, we don't expect them to be absolutely perfect. We are sinners still, even when we're Christians. But there shouldn't be a contentment with sin. There should be a discontentment with sin. We should be constantly, as Christians, trying to overcome and seeing some successes in our, in our fight against sin in our lives. And that should be evident to people around us and particularly to the church that's interested in, in you becoming a member and that you might be interested in becoming a member of. They should be able to see growth, some Christian growth there, some fruit on the tree. If you truly are a good tree, you should be bearing good fruit. So we need to defend the, the, the temple that we know as Dremoyne Baptist Church from fresh corruption, but we need to also defend it from old corruption that's already present as well or may spring up in, in ways that we didn't foresee. Just as Jesus gets there with the old temple and kicks out stuff that's there, we should always be protective of our membership roles as well and this is where church discipline comes into play. Church discipline is one of those things that is rarely practised in a lot of churches and it's not because everyone's such a good person that they don't need it. It's because it's one of those things that is minimised. 
and it's sort of been forgotten about, something you did sort of 100 years ago, church discipline. But no, we need to constantly be looking at one another as members of this temple, looking at our lives and assessing and if someone is there and they're unrepentant in their sin and they, they are openly sinning, maybe they start an adulterous affair and they say, no, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in repenting, I think it's okay, then the church needs to protect the, the new temple. It needs to protect the temple that we know is Ramoyne Baptist Church and clean out the corruption. We won't get a whip out and crack it over them, but we will be loving and we'll try and help them to understand that they are going off the track and that they need to mend their ways. We need to protect the new temple from corruption that may spring up from within. Just as we see in the old temple, there's corruption there. We need to clean it out. And we need to do this even if it consumes us. We see Jesus' zealousness for the temple ended up consuming him. And if it consumed our king, it will consume the citizens as well at times. It may be that in 20 years' time, the government passes a law that all churches must accept into their membership active homosexuals, that it's not right to discriminate, and if you do that, then you will have to shut up your shop, you'll have to shut this church, and it may be that that happens, that we then are called to let it consume us. Our zealousness for the temple means that it ends up consuming and the church folds in because we need to be zealous just like Jesus was. Regardless of what may happen to us, we need to be zealous so that it may even consume us. And then finally, the other temple that we need to protect that I want to look at this morning, uh, just briefly at the end here, is we're meant to defend ourselves as temples. We're meant to defend our own selves. We are individually called temples of the Holy Spirit. We are temples to God. And so we need to defend ourselves as well. We need to defend ourselves from new sin coming in, just like Jesus defended the new temple, from new new people coming along and and, and entrusting himself to them. We need to defend ourselves from new sin as well. We may never have struggled with that sin before and thought, oh, it's okay. But we need to recognise it when it comes along and be ready to protect ourselves from it, defend ourselves from it. And so, how do we do this? Well, one of the best ways is, of course, to recognise sin for what it is when it comes along. Read your Bibles, meditate upon it, and it will reveal different sins to you as they come along. Is law reveals sin. And so we need to read our Bibles, understand the law, so we can recognise sin for what it is and defend ourselves from it when it comes along. And pray. What does the Lord's Prayer say? Lead me not into temptation. We need to pray that that we won't be led into a fresh temptation. We need to defend our temples from new sin. And then lastly, we need to defend our, ourselves, our new, te- our new temples of ourselves from old corruptions that continue to come back. Old corruptions, old sins that we think that we're done with, but we need to get the whip out and crack it over it again and make sure it gets out. We thought we were done with it, but here it is creeping back in the temple door. I need to get rid of it. And this, of course, is some of those sins that are right in certain circumstances but a sin when they're in the wrong place. That's the wonderful thing about this example we see of Jesus. We see a a legitimate thing being done in the wrong place and becoming sin. And so it is with so many sins in our lives, particularly the sin of money. That's what the, the problem was here as well. And so it is in our lives. We need money to survive. We need money to transact in this world and God gives us money It's a good thing there, but when it's in the wrong place, 
when it's crowding out our devotion to God, when it's not under God anymore, it's become our idol, then it's in the wrong place and it becomes sin. Money in itself isn't bad. It's where you place it, where you put it in your life. And so we need to crack the whip out and get on top of it. Clean out the temple from the love of money. And it can be with lots of sins in our lives. Sexual desires. Sexual desires are good and right when they're within marriage. But when they're for someone who isn't your wife or isn't your husband, they become sin. And we need to clean that corruption out. Same with things like hatred. We're told in the Bible to hate evil. Hate is a good thing. We're meant to detest evil. We're meant to hate it. But when we start hating the people around us and even hating our enemies, we might think that's okay. What does Jesus say? Love your enemies. When hate's in the wrong place, it becomes sin. And we need to clean it out from our temples, get rid of it. And the same with even things like putting people to death. Now, I believe in capital punishment. I think it goes right back to Genesis 9, that when you mess with the image of God, you've condemned yourself. You put yourself to death. And so I believe in the military. I'm no pacifist. I believe that we should be able to defend ourselves. And when Hitler goes and kills many, many people made in the image of God, he has condemned himself to death. I think it is right and true. But we shouldn't let that thinking about death pervade into other areas, like abortion or euthanasia, that some people can be put to death because they're just really, really small, stem cell research. They're just so tiny that it doesn't matter if we... It can only be viewed under a microscope that we can put them to death. Sin in the wrong, something in the wrong place becomes sin, and so it is with death. Sometimes death is appropriate. But here, in, in those kinds of cultural issues that are swarming around us at the moment, it becomes sin. And so we need to clean it out. When the Sydney Morning Herald starts talking about it in a good light again, we need to clean it out. Remember that those people are made in the image of God. Someone with dementia does not deserve to die because their carbon footprint is too big. We need to clean that kind of thinking out. Get your whips out. Defend the temple all the time. So we see with Jesus that he began his ministry here. There's good reason to believe he began his ministry with cleaning out a temple and he ended his ministry with cleaning out a temple. And I wish that would be the case for all of us as Christians, that we are constantly cleaning out our temple. When we become a Christian, we clean out the sin and we continue cleaning out the sin all our lives. And then people see us at the very end of our lives. Are you done with cleaning out the temple? No, 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 still cleaning out the sin still getting the whip out and cracking it over the sin in my life, trying to remove it from within this temple. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Jesus Christ and what he did. We thank you for the record of it here and that we can trust it and we can learn from it. We thank you that you have indeed entrusted yourself to us who believe that you paid for our sins that we know that you dwell within us. We pray that we will be firm in who we accept into church membership here, that we will be careful to cleanse the temple when needed, and we pray that we will be careful to cleanse our own lives, that we will recognise sin for what it is when it comes along, no matter how attractive it might be, that through careful Bible reading and prayer we may see that sin for what it is and put it behind us. And we pray that we will continue to overcome our old sins, the ones that keep coming back. We won't let them take a foothold, 
that we'll recognise them when they start to come back in that temple door again and we'll get our whips out and crack it over them and send it packing, Lord. We pray that you'll give us the strength to do this and we pray all of this in your Son's name. Amen.